This is the Medical Matters Podcast, a program which brings direct information, engaging discussion, and insight into the current state and issues surrounding healthcare. Now, here's your hosts, Dr. Peter Breyer and nurse practitioner Kelly McCormick. Welcome to Medical Matters Podcast. Thanks for listening. In this podcast, uh, we're going to talk about the shortage of uh, physicians as well as a shortage of uh, nurses and how that is uh, affecting our uh, patient population. Uh, in addition, get a little more in depth about talking about medical school and and how that process occurs. So, Peter. It's been really interesting about the supply of physicians. When I was in medical school and when I was coming out, it was thought that there was going to be a big surplus of physicians. In fact, I remember Oh, about 30 years ago, going to this seminar where they said that there was going to be a huge surplus. Did I say Surplus. Surplus of physicians, especially in specialty groups like neurosurgery, neurology, cardiology. And in fact, what's happened is it's exactly the opposite, or it seems that it's the opposite, that there's been a shortage of physicians in all specialties just about. And I don't think any specialties seem to have a surplus. And uh, the question is why and, and, and how to improve the situation. So you, you sent me this kind of interesting article called Why America Has So Few Doctors. And um, it, it's kind of an interesting uh, look at things and, you know, talking about... Um, medical school and certainly the, the the time that it takes for somebody to go through that whole process to become a doctor. So right. people start four years in their undergraduate program, you know, get their bachelor's and then usually with a concentration on like pre-medicine well, um, or a science of some sort and then apply and get accepted to medical school, which is then another four-year process. So you got 12 years of basic education before you get four years of college. So you've already got 16 years in. Right. And then you go to medical school, which is another four years, which is 20 years of education. And then if you want to be an internist like me, you'd have three years of a residency. So it's 23 years of education before you can even start to practice in and medicine. 11 years of, of post-education. Post-education. Now, so, and, that's, and that can vary as well depending on a specialty. Like if you did neurosurgery or maybe orthopedics or cardiothoracic surgery is specialized, that residency program may end up being something more like six to seven years right. in so, addition to your medical school. So you may come out of your residency old at age <laughs> you come out of medical school at age 26 right and then you've got three years of residency if you're going into a basic field like I don't mean to demean internal medicine but it's not a specialty because most specialists have to take three years of internal medicine before they go into a specialty or surgical specialists have to take general surgery 
before going into a specialty. So many, let's say a neurosurgeon might not come out until he's um, 34, 35. I would think maybe four, you know, undergrad. He's almost an old man when he comes out. 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 30. So maybe around 33. And I think that's these days, depending if kids do the traditional, I go to, you know, I graduate high school, I go to college for four years, finish at age 20, 22, then I go immediately to medical school. And I don't know if, if, you know, you see a tendency maybe of kids maybe being a little older, maybe they've gone to do something else, work a little bit, get a little bit of kind of experience maybe in, in an area that they're interested in, certainly in medicine, maybe as an EMT or a paramedic or um, in, in a hospital setting and then go back to um, yeah, I've seen that school. happen. I, there was a fellow in my class who didn't really come out of medical school till he was over 40. And so then he had to do a residency. He came out of the military, and, and then he went to medical school. He was like 40 years old when he graduated medical school. Then we had another biochemist guy who was like 38, 39 when he graduated medical school. And so how long is there useful careers? In fact, I knew... A surgeon, a local surgeon in in here where we are, who I think he only practiced about 10 years because he was so old by the time he became a surgeon, he only practiced 10 years. So that's another difficult problem. But we have a system of education in the United States where you have to do, when you come out of high school, most people don't know what they're going to do at all unless they went to some kind of technical school. And if they're going to college, I mean, they have a career path, but it's four years before they even start on their career path. So I think in other countries, people take tests at the end of high school to determine where they're going. So they have a four-year start already because... So so one of the other issues with the medical medical school itself is the the cost right you spend money going to um four years of undergraduate and you know if you go to a state school that is well um supplemented (laughs) that you know that those costs may not be huge but if you end up going to say a private university or something like that you know like a, a duke or something like that for your undergraduate you're probably talking 60 plus a 60 thousand plus a year um, in undergraduate costs and then on top of that going to medical school and probably depending it's probably the same probably 50 to 60 thousand dollars a year for that so when you're finished you know these these um, uh, medical students finish with with you know a high amount of um, debt you know I think the one salvage (laughs) If I if I could say is certainly when they go to do their um, residencies, you do get paid. They do get paid during their residency, I believe, right? Yeah, and but part you, of that is you make med- a, Medicare a or, minimal income, right? And most residencies are supplemented by the government, and that's also contributing to the shortage because there's a limited number of residencies, so that. There's a limited number of medical schools 
that produce the doctors that go into these limited number of residencies. Now, there's more residencies than there are American medical students coming out. And these are supplemented by uh, foreign medical graduates who do uh, help the numbers of doctors in the United States. But so, so that means that foreign medical, foreign medical students means that they're individuals who have gone to medical school in, in a different country other than the right. United States. Now, many Americans go abroad because of the limited number of medical school slots. They're like... Uh, Oh. Italy or Guadalajara or oh, okay. other places. And many residents in the United States are foreign. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sort of hard to imagine why we don't produce more doctors. But I think one of the problems is, as we talked about, our education system. Mm-hmm. Another problem is the cost, which is probably approaching or over a half a million dollars in debt. Right. If you don't have rich parents to help pay for your medical education. school education. And the limited number then there's a limited number of residencies and then so there's a the supply side. And then there's the exodus side. So we haven't even talked about it all. <laughs> that that is true. So coming you know, so going through that whole process and I'm assuming that Overall, let's just say over the last 45 years or so, I, I've been a nurse since 1984. And so, you know, over the last 40 to 45 years, I'm assuming that not a whole lot has changed in the way medical education is done, right? So it makes me wonder a little bit why the medical community or medical schools, they haven't changed their program to to be a more um, kind of, I don't want to say like a compressed, but something that focuses on, all right, I know as a, as a, a kid, teenager going through that I want to go into medicine when I'm done with high school and that's going to be my pathway. You know, why have they not developed pathways that focus strictly on getting somebody from point A to begin being a physician to the end of being physician and cut out a lot of that middle stuff. Not to say that, you know, X number of credits in physical education or the arts or something is not good, you know, or it's not a good background to, to have to, to make somebody a bit more well-rounded but if the focus for pretty much through medical school and all that is really a science-based um, program, then why not start at the beginning and, and be able to compress that down and get people through the process and through the program in a shorter period of time, cut back, then that cuts back their costs, right, the individual's costs, and then gets them into the process of of being uh, in working and getting through the residency and and getting into practice, you know, a couple of years sooner. There are six year programs in the United States. Uh, Boston University has one, and uh, I believe Penn State has one. They're difficult to get into. Only the brightest of the bright They're get into them. They're a fast them. track. They're Very a fast fun. track, and most of those. 
people that get into those programs, maybe I'm not, maybe this isn't true, but I believe that the majority of those people are the brightest of the bright, and they end up going into research, not clinical medicine, or that many of them from six-year schools go into clinical medicine. But I, I think that they could shorten the first two years of medical school, in my opinion, were not really worth it uh, as far as how much you learned. I mean, you learned some things, Mm -hmm. but the first year especially when you took anatomy and histology and you took some basic scientist courses, humanities, after you'd already been through humanities in college, I think the first year of medical school could be, the first two years could be compressed into one year probably. So I think it could shorten the medical school process by one year that way. Uh, It would be very difficult to change the medical education system uh, and doing away with four-year colleges. Now maybe that will happen and maybe some medical schools will start accepting people after two years, but then without a college degree. You know, that I don't think many college, many medical schools would want people without college degrees. Well, in the big picture, did, did, you, did you think 30 years ago that people would be able to, to get a degree by going online and learning, you know, through computer-based type classrooms versus physically, you know, sitting in a classroom? I, I think, well, you know. Well, maybe I'm old-fashioned. <laughs> maybe. There's some... <laughs> There's some learning that you can do online, right. but there is no, there is no replacement for being at the bedside of a physician and learning no. from other more experienced physicians by hands-on. Right. There's no. no replacement for that. Right. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like with technology and the growth, you know, 30 years ago, would you have imagined that people would be getting degrees by going through? online programs and stuff like that versus showing up at the college, sitting in the classroom and going through, you know, that kind of thing. So I would think that medicine itself can maybe kind of catch up with a little bit more of the modern times in terms of looking at how can you, you know, do do that kind of thing. And I I do... Well, what what are you saying? I mean, where where can you go? (laughs) You don't... You already have computers controlling all of medicine. I think you need more hands-on. I I think that part of all this bad feelings and burnout, part of it is computers because it's lost the human touch. And I think younger doctors aren't getting so much the inspiration that you had from learning from, from brilliant uh, older doctors who worked all their lives in, in medicine, and uh, I think that hands-on touch is missing, and I think that's why there's so much burnout. Like I said, looking at the other side, why do so, so many people leave medicine? Why do so many doctors take administrative positions? Why do they retire early? Why do they go into subspecialties, you know, where they don't see that many patients? That's a good question to ask. I think we'll take a short break and we'll come back and kind of talk about some of those other aspects of uh, medical school, medical school education and, and the whole world of, of what it's like to be a physician. 
It's time for Did You Know on the Medical Matters Podcast. Did you know our nutritional intake consists of macronutrients and micronutrients? Macronutrients are the proteins, fats, and carbohydrates we take in each day. Macronutrients provides our bodies with the energy it needs to function. Let's focus on carbohydrates. Who doesn't love a good carbohydrate, or a bad one for that matter? Each gram of carbohydrate equals 4 calories. Carbohydrates fuel our bodies for exercise, preserves our muscle mass during exercise, and feeds our brains. The recommended daily allowances of carbohydrates are 45 to 65% of our daily calories. Sources of carbohydrates can be found in grains, fruits, and starchy vegetables. Carbohydrates are grouped into complex and simple carbohydrates. Complex carbohydrates take your body longer to break down. Think beans or grains or potatoes. Blood sugars remain blood sugars remain more stable and you have a sense of fullness longer. By comparison, simple carbohydrates, think sugar, are broken down quickly and blood sugar rises quickly. Think candy bars and baked goods. Try adding in more complex carbohydrates in your daily diet and limit your simple carbs. You may notice a difference in how you feel. Let's get back to the Medical Matters Podcast. Once again, here's Peter and Kelly. Welcome to Medical Matters Podcast. We are talking about the potential for physician shortage that will be coming up over the next several years. And I would say somewhat that that we do have a shortage of uh, particular physicians. I think certainly neurologists, neurosurgeons, um, some of those subspecialties. um, Dermatology uh, is is, uh, very low. Uh, And general uh, family practitioners, internists, and uh, pediatricians. I think there's pediatricians especially. Most of their care is well babies or well kids check and vaccinations and such. Uh, The uh, American Association of Medical Colleges predicts a shortage of 37,800 to 124,000 physicians in the country by 2034. And much of that data was collected before the COVID pandemic. So it's probably so something that they're going to have to relook at when they were collecting that data, because I think certainly in this pandemic, um, trying to get an appointment can be extremely difficult. Um, in addition to just the ancillary part of medicine, not just seeing the doctors and providers that take care of you, but also things like getting lab work, getting radiology tests can be weeks and weeks out because they just don't have enough people to do the work. And ironically, at the start of the pandemic, at least, uh, there were small practices that failed because of the pandemic or had to survive on the loans that they got from the government because they nobody wanted to go to a doctor at the start of the pandemic during the major lockdowns. And so physicians' offices were empty, and they had very little income. Physicians pretty much survive week to week with the with their incoming collections. So that can become pretty uh, toxic. And I think there were some physicians that retired. Uh, I understand it was also even tougher or just as tough on dentists, that people weren't going to the dentist at all. And, and um, there were quite a bit of dentist practices that failed. It's 
interesting to me that, you know, through all of this, some of the things that have evolved is a greater acceptance of the telemedicine. And one of those things I think was maybe kind of a little too late on some level, right? So if that had been something that had been instituted and maybe more accepted by um, certainly the insurance companies and in, in providing payment and stuff for that service, that a lot of those physicians' offices uh, may have been able to survive because they might have been able to do the virtual visits with, with their patients because they would have had the adequate um, technology to be able to do that at the time. I, I think this has also accelerated the um, end of the uh, primary care, uh, small little practice. I think uh, independent group practices may survive. I doubt an independent practitioner can survive in this age. And it accelerated the trend into the major health systems, absorbing physicians. I, I think that that was way before the pandemic. The, yeah, but that, accelerated that trend, I think. I think, I don't agree. <laughs> because okay. I, I don't agree. You know, I, I think that that this, the, the transition from things like cardiology and orthopedics. Yeah, that and, happened before. And, yep, and... and Internal medicine family practice groups long were absorbed by the mega mm-hmm. health systems that, that we have now. Um, I don't know if that's been good or bad on some level. I think through the pandemic, my experience is that the health system of owning everybody, I don't think has been a benefit for um, patients in terms of their getting back to people. As an example, my husband saw his physician. He's supposed to have his kind of scans to, to check the progress of his prostate cancer. And he, he's been waiting. Yeah, three months. Almost a month to, 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 to be called. And he's, oh, he hasn't been he's, called yet. Well, he has he, to call. well, no, no, no. He's called multiple times to get it all straightened out and either doesn't get a call back. <laughs> And right. it has still not taken place, and now he's supposed to go see the provider. Well, at one time, you the know, radiologists were independent, and you got better service. There's no doubt about it. The, everything goes into the computer, and you still have to have human input into arranging these tests and, and getting them right. And I don't know why there's such a huge, still such a huge backlog on the testing. Well, certainly, I think what the pandemic has done is I think you've seen people who have worked a long time in healthcare have decided that they're not going to put up with it anymore with the pandemic stuff. You know, their their exposures to patients with COVID, um, vaccinated or or unvaccinated, otherwise. Um, I think that, that that and the workload of these really sick, sick, sick patients that have come into the hospital, I think has been the impetus to allow maybe nurses and probably physicians that maybe were thinking, oh, you know, I'm probably going to work maybe another, you know, couple of years and, and then retire. And I think that really pushed them to make that decision yeah. earlier. Well, it pushed it's, me into... Uh definitely slowing down yeah. for sure i i was very uh, put off by the pandemic and and the way it's been handled and and the way it's been 
mishandled and and the way you react and the reaction of patients quite frankly and so i think that's con- the major contribution to this physician shortage and probably to the sh- nursing shortage as well is the uh, frustrations of of dealing with everyday work and the fact that the population of physicians and nurses are getting older and that's the major reason for the for the shortage that the retirements i guess the supply of younger physicians into medical school or else the exodus of primary care physicians mostly because most of the shortage are in the general specialties right such as family practice internal medicine neurology as you said general surgery so i'm in, i'm surprised Cardiology is not too much shortage there. No, I, I think what you see is that when you get people that are going through medical school or maybe trying to make a decision about what they need or what path they want to follow, um, I, I think they probably look at a compensation as one of the major factors, as well as probably somewhat of a you know part of you know their interest and in what they're interested in, um, and and a, a work life balance. I think then maybe the insurance payers, et cetera, et cetera, maybe need to to work at finding how do you better compensate the gatekeepers of your health, which are your family doctors and your internists. Yes, I agree. Uh, We need to get more internists and generalists, and we need to have... I'm not sure about less specialists, but so many physicians are entering specialists only. And also non-clinical fields, such as working for insurance companies or doing administrative work or hospital work or something like that or research. So it's a problem that's going to continue and probably get worse. We haven't mentioned auxiliary people, such as nurse practitioners and uh, physician's assistants, can help alleviate this shortage, especially in primary care. So that's something we'll get to on another day. You've been listening to the Medical Matters Podcast. Listen weekly for more news and wisdom from professionals who provide direct patient care. The information discussed on this program does not take the place of your provider. Check out past shows, additional content, and leave your questions and comments at medicalmatterspodcast.com.